You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Joseph Anton. Chief of the Stem Cell Transplant Program of the Department of Medical Oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. He is also the founding member and past president of the American Society of Blood and Marrow Transplantation and a past chairman of the steering committee of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Anton. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Before jumping into the topic of stem cell transplants and venoocclusive disease, what brought you to the field of hematology? I became interested in hematology really as a third-year medical student. Uh, bone marrow function was something that, that I found particularly fascinating. And I went into transplantation really because of the influence of a mentor that I had at the time. This was back in uh, 1978, uh, Joel Rappaport, who was the head of the transplant program at uh, Peter Ben Brigham. And it became clear to me that transplantation was unique amongst what was available therapeutically at the time anyway, uh, in that it was a curative treatment, uh, whereas most things in hematology oncology are palliative. That's not to say that there aren't curative treatments now, but transplantation is still the one that has the most general applicability. It was a therapy that was spectacularly successful in some people and quite problematic in others. There was a tremendous amount of biology involved. We didn't know much about blood cell production at the time. We didn't know much about immune function at the time. The antibiotic availability was much more limited than it is right now. And so I felt that this was an, an area in which we had a great deal of promise, the capacity to cure people, but also a lot to learn and a lot to lot to improve. And my estimation at the time proved correct. We've gone come a tremendous way since the 1970s when I started in this business. And, you know, when I, when I first started off, if you were 35 years old, that was it. Uh, that was the oldest person that we were willing to transplant. And now we're routinely people doing people in their 70s. And a lot of that has to do with the, with the research that has transpired over the last 30 plus years and made transplantation safer and more effective. Stem cell transplantation is something that we hear all the time working with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society as a form of treatment. For those listening, what is a stem cell transplant and why is it important when it comes to treating a patient? 
Well, let, let me ask, answer a related question first. Sometimes people get <laughs> a little bit confused about the difference between a bone marrow transplant and a stem cell transplant. These are actually exactly the same thing. The way this field evolved was we felt that the bone marrow stem cell, so the stem cell is the most primitive cell in the bone marrow, and it is capable of reestablishing blood cell production. Uh, you may or may not know that we produce close to a trillion blood cells a day, a trillion blood cells a day from our stem cells. And you have to be able to do that for 70, 80, 90, 100 years, right? So the characteristic of the stem cell is this capacity to produce large number of progeny, of uh, offspring, so to speak, and the capacity to, for doing it for a lifetime. So what we want to do in someone who has a hematological disease, either bone marrow failure or a hematological malignancy or something like sickle cell disease, uh, is to replace those defective stem cells, the ones that are causing the illness, with healthy ones. Now, we initially thought that you could only do that by collecting stem cells from the bone marrow itself, and that's where a bone marrow harvest comes from or a bone marrow transplant. We subsequently learned in the 1980s that stem cells actually circulate in the blood, and you can trigger them to be released from the bone marrow into the blood where they can be collected using uh, leukapheresis. Leukapheresis is the same process that we use to collect platelets for people who are just donating platelets except we have to give the, the donor a stimulant, GCSF, to cause these stem cells to be released from the marrow into the circulation. So they're actually the same stem cells. There are a few characteristics that are a bit different, and there are some reasons that we prefer to use one uh, product or the other. All bone marrow transplants are stem cell transplants. People have come into the habit of referring to the peripheral blood collection as a stem cell transplant and the marrow collection as a bone marrow transplant, but in fact they're really the same thing. And can you also tell our listeners the difference between an autologous transplant and an allogeneic transplant? So when we first started doing transplantation many years ago, the principle was that cancers, leukemias, lymphomas are dose sensitive. That is, the bigger dose of chemotherapy you could give, the more likely you are to eradicate the malignancy. The problem is we, we come up against a barrier, which is that your bone marrow is also sensitive to chemotherapy, and it's also sensitive to dose. And what we learned was that if you increase the dose too high, the blood counts won't recover. And well, that's not good. So you need to have a, a backup or a um, not, not so much a contingency plan, but a plan for establishing blood cell production after giving this high dose. So if you want to give a very high dose, what you have to do is uh, collect the patients own stem cells in advance, freeze them, protect them from the chemotherapy, save them in the blood bank or in the cell manipulation laboratory. Then you can give the high-dose therapy. It destroys the malignancy, let's say Hodgkin lymphoma or non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and then you give the stem cells back to allow blood counts to recover. So it's really a rescue or an antidote for the administration of very high-dose chemotherapy. When we started initially doing allogeneic transplantation, that was our process as well. And that, in part, was why we had to limit our transplants to younger people. And it's true. It does function that way. Instead of using your own bone marrow, you use somebody else's bone marrow. Initially, it was all matched sibling uh, donors. Then once the registry was established, it could be matched unrelated donors. It could be a cord blood, which is an unrelated donor. It could be now more, more and more frequently mismatched donors. But there, you initially had that same, that same motivation, that is, uh, if you're going to give a what's called a myeloablative or a high-intensity conditioning regimen, you will destroy the patient's capacity to make blood cells, and you can use the donor cells as an antidote for that or a rescue. But also in allogeneic transplantation, there's a second very important component, 
And that's what we call graft versus malignancy, graft versus leukemia, graft versus uh, lymphoma, graft versus myelodysplastic syndrome. And what we discovered there was that when we do these transplants, we transfer a little bit of the donor's immune system. And of course, your immune system's goal, or your immune system's function is to survey the body looking for things it doesn't recognize. So it's looking for viruses, it's looking for bacteria or yeasts or molds. And when it identifies them, it kills them. Uh, and it generates an immune response that protects you from that, in, that infection. But when we take cells out of your sister uh, and give them to you, as long as it's not an identical sister, there are subtle differences between the cells. So even in people who are so-called completely matched, we can't match everything. And there are very subtle differences between the donor and the recipient that we cannot recognize very easily, but the immune system can recognize. And so then what happens is that the immune cells circulate in the body. They recognize these differences. If those differences are present on the malignancy, then you have now established a second mechanism for eradicating the cancer, and that's called graft-versus-malignancy or graft-versus-leukemia. So in an allogeneic transplant, you've got two components. You've got the uh, dose intensity and the graft-versus-malignancy. In the autologous transplantation, you only have the one component, which is high-dose uh, therapy. Now, the problem and why we don't always do allogeneic transplantation is, is that if those same immune cells recognize your skin or your liver or your intestinal tract as also being foreign, then that's called graft-versus-host disease. So the transplant physician's job is to establish a balance between the beneficial component of graft-versus-leukemia, lymphoma, and the detrimental component of graft-versus-host disease. And when a transplantation is successful, that uh, balance is in the patient's favor. When it's unsuccessful, sometimes uh, we get into serious complications. One of the other benefits of the graft-versus-malignancy uh, effect is what's called reduced-intensity transplants. So while in an ablative transplant, we, we get a twofer, right? We get both high intensity and this GPL response. In a reduced intensity transplant, we're giving a much lower dose of chemotherapy. This is a dose of chemotherapy that cannot eradicate the bone marrow. So you're actually not giving the stem cells as a form of antidote or rescue for the very high intensity chemotherapy. It's much more tolerable. And you're depending entirely on the graft versus malignancy effect, the graft versus leukemia slash lymphoma effect. And this is why we now can do transplantation in elderly people or people who have had coronary disease or people who have had kidney transplants or people who have some degree of COPD or, or whatever, because we're not giving such intensive doses of chemotherapy. The upside is, is that you can transplant older people. You get, a, you get away with a lot lower doses of chemo and a lot less associated side effects. The downside is the relapse rates are a little bit higher uh, because you don't get that dose intensity effect. This is somewhat dependent on disease. So some diseases are very sensitive to graft versus lymphoma, let's say. So let's say follicular lymphoma is very sensitive to that, and the relapse rates are quite low, even with a low-intensity transplant. Myeloid diseases, such as acute myeloid leukemia, are sensitive, but not quite so much. So the relapse rate goes up a little bit if you use a reduced-intensity transplant. But the benefit of that is offset by the reduction in side effects from using a lower-dose chemotherapy regimen. So part of the transplant physician's role is to evaluate the recipient, the patient, and determine what the proper stem cell source is, autologous versus allogeneic, if the plan is matched family member, cord blood, and unrelated donor, and then what intensity of therapy is required to best provide both an anti-cancer effect and to reduce the toxicity of the procedure. Since stem cells for transplantation can be collected from the blood or the marrow, 
How does a patient's doctor choose the cell source that's best for the patient? Well, so it depends on the underlying disease. It depends on the donor, and it depends on uh, other aspects of the situation. So, for instance, if we have a family member donor, a matched brother or sister, it turns out that the two stem cell sources function in a very similar fashion. The risks and benefits are roughly the same. And then it's dealer's choice. From a donor's perspective, honestly, it doesn't make much difference. Donors who have donated both bone marrow and peripheral blood stem cells when evaluated using a quality of life questionnaire, find the two to be equal in terms of side effects and, and satisfaction. There are times when we prefer to use one or the other. So for instance, for aplastic anemia, which is not a malignancy, we only use bone marrow. And the reason for that is peripheral blood stem cells have more T cells in it, they have more immune cells in it, and therefore the risk of chronic graft-versus-host disease is higher. And since there is no graft-versus-cancer, no graft-versus-malignancy, required in aplastic anemia. We don't want to provide uh, or induce uh, additional uh, problems with chronic GVHD. In malignancies, if it's a good risk malignancy, that is a malignancy that's very likely to respond to therapy, we will often use bone marrow. If it is one that we think is going to be a little bit tougher, either we want the counts to come back a little faster or we want to just provide a little bit more of the graft versus malignancy, we, then, we generally will then use peripheral blood because the, the graft-versus-leukemia effect is a little bit more intense, although the trade-off is the chronic graft-versus-host disease is a little bit more frequent. And then in unrelated donors, you, don't, you, can, you can ask for a product, but if the unrelated donor doesn't want to give one product or the other, some donors don't want to receive the uh, GCSF. They don't mind giving you something, but they don't want to receive anything, and they won't, they won't give peripheral blood. And other donors don't want to go to the operating room, uh, and so they won't give bone marrow. So to when, when it's an unrelated donor transplantation, we make our preference known, and then we accept whatever the donor is willing to give. It's not that the, there's that big a difference between them, uh, and so it, it's not uh, critically important for us. And you mentioned cord blood. Is that something that is an option for patients who can't find any matches? Yeah. So cord blood certainly developed in that exact situation, which is that when an infant is born, they are immunologically very primitive. That is, that baby has not seen a virus, it's not seen a bacteria, it's not seen a mold. Its immune system is very weak. And of course, uh, people who've had young children know that you don't take them to the grocery store in the first couple weeks of life. And of course, they have to be immunized multiple times because they don't have immunity to anything. So it turns out that you can use cord blood to cross HLA barriers. That is, you don't have to be fully matched with a cord blood because that baby's immune system has a difficult time recognizing the recipient and causing things like graft-versus-host disease. So it's really what, probably the first example where we could routinely use donor products that were not fully compatible relatively safely. The downside to cords is, is that, you know, that's a tiny baby whose stem cells you're taking. And uh, although there are a lot of stem cells in the cord blood, relatively speaking, with respect to the child's size, it's less than we usually use in a stem cell transplantation. So if you're using the cord blood for small people, children or adults who are relatively small, uh, we can often find enough in the cord blood to actually do this transplant successfully. In most Americans who are on a larger size, so if you've got some 200, 220-pound guy who needs a transplant, you cannot find a cord blood that's big enough to provide enough stem cells. So now we're using two. 
two stem cell products. And this gets to be expensive, and there's some complications that are using two products that make life a little bit more complicated. We continue to use cord bloods. Many people don't have any donors in the family, don't have any donors in the registry, and therefore have no other alternatives. We are increasingly using half matches, what are called haplo identical matches. These are, for instance, a child who's, a, who's an obligate half match, uh, a parent, sometimes a cousin or a nephew, because we, based on work that was done at Johns Hopkins over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, we've now figured out how to do that type of mismatch transplantation successfully using an adult product. Remember I said that we, one of the reasons we were able to cross HLA barriers with cord bloods was that the baby's immune system is very primitive. Well, adults' immune systems are not at all primitive, and they're, they're very effective. And we had a very hard time figuring out how to do that. And that has been largely solved now. And so we're using fewer cord bloods and using more haploidentical transplants as time goes on. There's actually a trial that was just closed by the Blood and Marrow Transplantation Clinical Trials Network uh, comparing the two in a randomized trial. So in, in a year or a little longer than that, we, we will have the definitive answer as to whether one of those two products is better than the other. Our estimation is, is that they're really quite similar and probably not one doesn't have a huge advantage over the other. The uh, haploidentical transplant has the advantage of being a healthy person who's alive and available, and if you need more stem cells or if you need more T cells for one reason or another, you can get them. If you use the cord blood from an infant that was born in 2004, and that young child is not going to be, first of all, it's completely anonymous, it's not going to be available to donate again. So if you need additional stem cells, you really don't have that option. So there are pros and cons for both approaches. And we mentioned that cancers may require stem cells from another donor. I'm interested to know, are children able to receive their own stem cells for treatment? So there are people who have what's called germline, that is, they're born with a genetic disease. So sickle cell anemia would be an example. And there are some people with leukemias who are born with a susceptibility to leukemia. There you cannot do an autologous transplant. You just give it back. But all malignancies are due to a mutation, and therefore they are genetically based. But if you acquire a mutation later in life, even if you're a child, if you acquire a new mutation when you're 5 years old or 10 years old, that's not germline. It's not intrinsic to all of your blood cells. So that person could get an autologous transplant. Doctor, along with graft-versus-host disease, which you spoke about earlier, venoocclusive disease is one of the most frequently encountered complications after stem cell transplantation. What is venoocclusive disease, and why is it that it's the most encountered complication? Venoocclusive disease is otherwise known as SOS, uh, which stands for sinusoidal obstruction syndrome. And what happens is, is that the very small blood vessels within the body of the liver, the lining of those blood vessels gets damaged from a combination of chemotherapy and perhaps radiation and other drugs that the person's received. It's exacerbated by the use of alcohol, by the use of, uh, by the presence of uh, hepatitis and things of that nature. And so when a transplant conditioning regimen is administered, the damage, the preexistent damage or preexistent susceptibility of the blood vessel lining results in additional damage to the blood vessels, which results in thrombosis or clotting. So instead of having a big clot in a vein, like you would get with a DVT, where you might get a, you know, a swollen leg because a large vessel has clotted, this is the microvasculature. This is tiny little blood vessels, and it occurs in a whole bunch of them inside the liver. And what happens is, is that the blood is 
pumped into the liver through the hepatic artery. These veins are obstructed and the blood can't get out. So the liver swells, it becomes tender. You can get something called ascites where fluid is expressed off the surface of the liver because as the body tries to force blood through the obstructed vascular system, it can't make its way through and some of the plasma leaks out and this results in swelling. It can also result in serious damage to the liver. So venoocclusive disease is primarily related to transplant chemotherapy type toxicity, although you can get it in both an autologous and allogeneic transplant. It's a little more common in allogeneic transplants, suggesting that the drugs that we use for GVHD prophylaxis may contribute to a small degree, and also some of the inflammatory mediators that are common in allogeneic transplantation may contribute to it as well. Like anything else in medicine, and this is true of GVHD as well, it occurs in a spectrum of severity. So some people will get none, some people will get a little bit, and it's completely innocuous and doesn't really bother you very much. Some people will get a moderate amount, which requires you know, attention, but is generally manageable. And some people get a very severe degree, which is life-threatening. And of course, it's the life-threatening ones that we're most worried about. So when it comes to someone being diagnosed with VOD, is it something where the person is diagnosed based off of symptoms, or is it blood work, or both? It's all of the above and plus physical examination. So in a, in a classic, very severe form of venoocclusive disease, the patient will start to gain weight. And if they gain more than 5% of their body weight, we start to become concerned. Often they will stop metabolizing some of their medications properly. So for instance, when we give tacrolimus or cyclosporin for graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis, the liver normally um, metabolizes those and eliminates them from the system. If liver stops functioning, the blood levels of those will go up precipitously. That could be a clue. Sometimes the patient will develop pain in the liver. Sometimes the patient will develop ascites or peripheral edema. The bilirubin, which is a measure of the liver's ability to detoxify things, will start to go up. And so uh, we measure the bilirubin, obviously, as a laboratory test. We see edema and ascites as a physical examination. We can do ultrasounds to look for ascites. And one of the things that we are commonly looking for is what's called reversal of flow in the portal vein. The portal vein is the vein that brings digested food and such from the intestinal tract into the liver. So the liver's circulation is a little bit odd compared to any other organ. In the muscle or your lung, there's a, a, an artery that brings blood in, and there's a vein that brings blood out. In the liver, there's a hepatic artery that brings oxygenated blood in. There's also a portal vein that brings in food and nutrients that come from the intestinal tract, and then there's also veins that take blood out of the liver. So there's actually a three-pronged circulation rather than the classical two-pronged circulation. And when that obstruction occurs to the small blood vessels, sometimes the flow will reverse in the portal vein, and we can detect that by Doppler ultrasound. So instead of bringing nutrients and such in from the intestinal tract to the liver, the flow turns backwards and uh, comes out of the liver. So the, the arterial flow is going into the liver, can't make it all the way through, so it does a U-turn and comes back out the portal vein. And we can detect that with a Doppler ultrasound. So that's another way of making that diagnosis. Along with infections and graft-first-host disease, VOD is one of the most common causes of death after transplant with the VOD that you were speaking of that requires attention. Well, it's not a common cause of death. It occurs in 5% of patients or less. 
uh, I guess it depends on how you define common. So it's not particularly common. When people <laughs> die after transplantation, it is one of the things that we worry about. Up until relatively recently, the last few years, there really wasn't any effective therapy for it. There's now been approval of a drug called defibrotide, uh, which is capable of uh, reversing the venoclusive disease. It doesn't work in everybody, but we can now use it in, a, in some people in a prophylactic way if we think they're at high risk of venoclusive you know, disease to try and prevent it, or in a preemptive way where if we start to see early evidence of venoclusive you know, disease, try and head it off at the pass. So this has changed our ability to manage this disease, and it's changed the mortality of, of the syndrome as well. Good to hear that there has been progress in this area. Many cases of VOD will actually re reverse on their own. The milder cases tend to reverse on their own. The very severe cases uh, do not. And so what you really want to try and do is catch it early so that you have an opportunity to prevent it from becoming severe and to, and to, and to try and turn it around before it causes a life-threatening complication. When I was reading up about VOD, there was a lot of articles about herbal tea and its influence on VOD. Would you be able to yeah. speak more about that? It's not any herbal tea. <laughs> right, right. They, the one they said was one used in Jamaica to make herbal yeah. tea. <laughs> yeah, it's a Jamaican herbal tea. So if you're using chamomile tea or if you've, wow. gone, down to, if you've gone down to your local grocery store and, and bought some herbal tea, you don't have to worry about it. So you should not have all of your listeners concerned about herb teas in general. There's a specific form of Jamaican herb tea that has a chemical in it called a terpenoid. Uh, which causes liver damage. And it's not common with that, but people in Jamaica will some, who drink that will sometimes get venoocclusive disease in the absence of a transplant. These are just people who are drinking this tea. There are actually are a couple medications that will do a similar thing uh, just because they cause liver damage, uh, one of which is a drug called Mylotard, which is commonly used in the treatment of AML. That's one that we have to be careful about both in in and of itself, and if the patient receives myelotard first and then goes on to transplantation later, that can increase the risk of being occlusive disease. Yeah, I found that very interesting. And like you said, listeners, it is not all herbal teas. Yeah, <laughs> it was, no panic. <laughs> exactly, no panicking. My family is Jamaican. So when I read that, I was like, oh, let's, check what we're, let's check what we're drinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know. So it's just called Jamaican. There, there are a lot of plants in Jamaica. I don't know exactly which plant is the culprit. I'm sure somebody knows, but I don't know offhand. And besides the defibrotide, is there any other treatments for VOD? There's not. Many things have been tried. Various forms of anticoagulation have been tried or uh, therapies that, that uh, so-called clot busters uh, have been tried, but unsuccessfully. There is only one therapy that has been demonstrated to be useful in occlusive disease. We sometimes use a drug called Actagol or Ursodiol to try and prevent venoclusive disease. It has a mild effect. It's not, it's not dramatic, but it's a very harmless drug. It's actually a bile salt. For those people who have a Latin background, Ursodiol means bear bile, just like Ursa Major is the great bear uh, constellation. It turns out that bears don't get gallstones. Their bile is more soluble than humans. So if we give uh, people this bile salt, it replaces the human bile salts and causes less damage to the liver uh, temporarily. It can be used actually to dissolve gallstones as well, although it doesn't do it in a very efficient way. Really? Yeah. So <laughs> I have gallstones, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, when it first came out, people liked to use, try and use it for that. It, it takes a quite a long time. So 
if you're not a candidate for gallstone surgery, some people will try and dissolve them with diversetile. But in any case, we, we started about two or three weeks before a myeloblative transplant, a high-intensity transplant, to try and reduce the risk of venoocclusive disease. It's moderately effective at doing that. It's not a perfect therapy. Very interesting. But, yeah. There is no other, other than defibrotide, there's no specific mm-hmm. treatment. All the treatments for venoocclusive disease are supportive care. Okay. So pretty much before 2016, when defibrotide came out, then it was just supportive care and really close monitoring. Is, is that what? That's it. That's all. Okay. Yeah. It was, well, it was available on compassionate use basis. Yeah. And, um, it was sort of a, it's sort of a sad story up to some extent. The drug's been around for actually quite a long time, but the companies that, uh, initial company that decided to try and develop it really was a, was a very small pharmaceutical company. They didn't have enough investment capital. They couldn't really do the definitive trial that you would want to do, a randomized trial. And when well, we were approached to do a to think about doing a randomized trial in severe venoocclusive disease, everybody refused <laughs> because, uh-huh. you know, well, because the mortality of very severe venoocclusive disease is so high, we couldn't justify randomizing people. Right. So it ended up taking just a very long time for the drug to get approved by the FDA. If we had done a prophylactic trial or an early therapy trial, uh, it would have gotten approved much sooner, but the company couldn't afford it because it would have, it would have required 400 patients, and they just didn't have the cash uh, to pay for that kind of study. So they took the slower route, <laughs> which which took wow. years. Uh, well, eventually we got there, but um, it was it was a little frustrating. So there's not really a lot of patients that after transplant then would get VOD. Or, I mean, because I, I read that it can occur in as high as 70% of patients. Oh, no. 70% is way yeah. too high. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, there may be subsets of patients, patients who have prior hepatitis and who've gotten myelotard or something of that nature. It's about 5%. Uh, it does not occur. It occurs very occasionally with reduced-intensity transplants. But I think 5% is really what, what we're talking about, not, not 70% by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. There are some uh, pediatric, some, very, some children who are very, very heavily pretreated, who've got a lot of pre-transplant morbidities and such, who have a higher risk, and that's where the the only prophylactic studies have been done. But in, in general, no. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the occurrence within pediatric versus adults and if there was a difference there. In average pediatric uh, patients, it's not any different or it's, it's lower, but there are some young children who, are, um, who have such very intensive regimens in advance and some complications of those therapies that it puts them at much higher risk. Uh, and that's the, the group in which the prophylactic trials were done a few years ago. So defibrotide is approved for, for both childhood and adults? Yeah. Oh, great. Glad that, that we're able to bring this to the forefront just because, you know, it's not something that, we speak about a lot, and the patients that do have it, since there are, you know, a few, we don't get, you know, the message about VOD out there. So I'm really glad that we were able to do this podcast with you. And, again, I thank you for your time. You're quite welcome. Dr. Anton, thank you so much for speaking with us today about stem cell transplantation and venoocclusive disease. Thank you for your work in hematology overall and for being such an important part of your patients' lives. You're quite welcome. 
Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.